Welcome to Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu, and here is our first podcast for 2022. And I, I want to say, of course, Happy New Year to everybody. And I also want to send out much appreciation for all the support that we've gotten at the podcast network. It's ex- expanded exponentially in 2021. And, of course, we aim to continue to add new podcasts and serve us all through these amazing teachers and thought leaders uh, that comprise our podcast network. So, again, thank you. It is all about uh, the con- the circle that gets created from the person who is speaking, teaching, Relating and the person who is receiving, listening, and relating. And that's an important circle. And I think the more that that happens, is, it just becomes more proof of us becoming more of the we, which uh, I'll, I'll uh, elaborate a little bit more when I introduce the actual podcast. The only thing I want to say is we just have some fabulous stuff coming up. Obviously, we're going to uh, put out some... We're going to have a couple of new podcasts, at least, coming out shortly. You'll hear about that as long as you uh, tune in to Be Here Now or get on BeHereNow.com, BeHereNowNetwork.com mailing list. And get on the RamDas.org one because I wanted to mention we have a wonderful slate of offerings this year and uh, in the near future. So, yeah, just go up there and and get your email in so you get the announcements and the newsletters. But what we have going in, in so, I don't know, towards, uh, in, in the late um, part, you know, winter into spring, like March, uh, we have this fantastic course from Ramdas, and it's, uh, comes, it's on the Bhagavad Gita, and it comes from the Naropa 1974 Gita course that Ramdas gave at uh, at Chogyam Trumpa's new uh, institute, Naropa Institute, which is now Naropa University, and uh, known to be one of the great uh, series of talks that he gave in his uh, teaching career. It is just fantastic, and we've got video of. Uh, a bunch of it, and that's pretty phenomenal to see. This going all the way back to those years, which are just a couple of years after Ramdas came back uh, from India and from being with Neem Karoli Baba, so that he's really hot. He's really right in it, and so it's pretty fantastic. At that, and and of course, our Ramdas Soul and Music series is going to continue next April. Oh, next April, this April, and uh, some fantastic musicians, and we're going to have our uh, another compilation from some of the music that we put out uh, at the end of last year through the Soul and series, including John Forte and including Rising Appalachia and much more. So exciting stuff going on, and much more than that. Uh, so please do give that email over on ramdas.org and so you keep up with what we're doing. This talk from Ramdas is the the central theme 
at least in the beginning, because Ram Dass always covers a lot of different things. This is from uh, March 93, and it's uh, uh, it, his first thoughts here are just about everyone who is at this particular retreat that he gave then. I think it was a retreat. He talked about the communal sense of a process of awaking, awakening that everybody is in if they have actually come. And he, his, as I said, the central theme is around paradox and the paradox of uh, which are two thoughts that are incompatible, form and formless, empty and full. And how do we embrace paradox? And Ram Dass used to talk a lot about being able to be on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time. We've talked about that quite a bit. And how to open and expand our awareness to live with the paradox within oneself. And um, yeah, just through mindfulness, we can really watch how we polarize things. And that word polarize, we are all very, very familiar with. What is going on in this country particularly is extraordinary in terms of the polarization. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty tough stuff. Extending all the way to what's going on with the pandemic, the vax, the unvaxed, the environment, uh, the haves and the have-nots, the racial justice issues. It's a lot, a lot of polarization that we are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. But I love the, uh, he gives an example of, which really hit home, and I'll explain why. He talks about, gee, it's my tooth until something goes wrong with that tooth. And it's, you, you know, it's giving you a tremendous amount of pain. Don't you know, it's going that effing tooth is killing me, you know? So it's from my tooth to that tooth. And it's not mine. It's talk, See how we just polarize even the most simple of things. This is a, the reason why, I, it, boy, it made, made me perk up here, is that um, I just got an abscess tooth, and I did the same damn thing. Called the dentist. Who's gonna? Can you get this that thing fixed? Okay, it's like it's not in my body anymore. It's like a foreigner that happened to, you know, escape a prison and attack me or something, which is kind of what it feels like in terms of the pain. Um, but you know, he talks about how we externalize and push away all untoward phenomena, like a, a toothache, and how just look at you know how we externalize evil acts. It's in it's a way. Uh, it's all them, okay? Anybody does anything underwear, that's them, including the tooth. It's them, them, them. And uh, that's a way for us. Uh, it's a way to bypass that it's... We, we don't want to accept that everything is within us. It's he, Ram Dass calls it a cheap way out, right? Just externalizing untoward events, people, etc. And um, he, uh, there's a wonderful little quote from him. This is something like, when you hear this thing, you should, we should all just think about, what, are, what is he talking about here? He says, the conceptual spirit conspiracy 
to see the universe in a certain way. That's the cheap way out. Okay? Let's think about that. Um, some of the other stuff that's going on in this thing, introducing it, uh, uh, intro- is introducing uh, perspective. So the, the idea of how, how do we have to get with paradox, of course, and how we polarize everything uh, is so uh, self-evident in terms of our lives these days. And uh, perspective. Perspective to me is so radically important. I mean, and Ramdas talked about shifting out of your mind, judgmental mind, into center of your being, center of your chest, which is spiritual heart, and shifting through breath into that place, through using the breath, taking three deep breaths. Just try it. You take three deep breaths into the center of your chest, and suddenly your consciousness You'll find if you just rest in there for a, a few moments, you definitely have less of the judgmental mind thing going on. It's amazing. So perspective, and then from there, your perspective changes in terms of handling life, in terms of its uh, the usefulness of its in, in spiritually. Uh, it's uh, quite amazing. And he quotes Ananda Mahima. Everybody, if you don't know who Ananda Mahima, A-N-A-N-D-A, Mai-M-A-Y, it was always to me, E-E, Ma, a great saint in India that many of us met back in the day. And uh, Ramdas, of course. And everything she did, she was a mother, she was a wife, Everything she did, she would say, is only in devotion to the divine. So she absolutely used all work and all interaction with everybody as a way to get into presence with the divine. And of course, she was a representative of that. She was very divine. (laughs) Just being around her, you knew that. Uh, so perspective, uh, that to me is a huge deal, and I love that he brought it up in this particular talk, especially again now in these days of polarization and, uh, va- of course, the vast uh, universal paradoxes. Uh, perspective is a huge way to transform one's daily life. The secret, here's the secret is the art of simultaneously being human and divine. And that's, again, back to, I just said it a little bit ago, Ramdas talking about you can be on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time. And the secret is the art of simultaneously being human and divine. So take that in when you listen to the podcast. And last but not least is another one of his... uh, beautiful aphorisms. Boy, he has so many. We just put out a book, by the way. Gee, I didn't mention that. Of Ramdas's Words of Wisdom. It was put together beautifully by Rachel Fisher. And uh, that is just came out before Christmas, uh, at the end of November, actually. Uh, you can get that anywhere. It's uh, widely uh, 
not wildly, but widely distributed. But you can just go to ramdas.org slash shop and purchase a copy. It's fantastic because you can just open the book anywhere. It's done by themes of what Ramdas said around death and dying, etc., etc. And uh, you just pick out one little paragraph or a few lines, and that can stick with you for the day. It's a great little book. It's not that little. It's hundreds of pages. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of Ramdas on the front. Words of wisdom. Um, and so this particular aphorism from Ramdas that uh, is so fantastic, mind is the computer center for protecting the survival of the separate entity. And that is what he's talking about throughout this lecture, this talk at this retreat. And it's how do we cut out that polarization of us and them? Yeah, isn't that just right on? Thanks for being here. Uh, appreciate everybody, really, uh, in, as we begin this new year. So tune in. We've got all fantastic uh, different um, podcasts throughout the Be Here Now podcast network. Check them out. I do one called Mind Rolling. Uh, just... Uh, had a, did did a, a really cool one with my old partner David Silver. You can check that out. It highlights this incredible Tibetan Lama uh, from uh, not that long ago. You know, a few decades ago, he left Toku Orgian Rinpoche. So check it out. Go to beherenownetwork.com. And this is Ramdas here and now. Well, when we look at uh, where we are in this little adventure we're having together, which we started out yesterday closing our eyes and raising our hands to signify to ourselves and then being aware of who we are, the sense of a process going on, of an awakening process, of a changing process going on in our lives. And then we started to talk about what you do with that process or how you are and all the different stages you might meet. And I took you through the stages of renunciation and then engagement with the material psychological world because when you push it away, you go into the horny celibate syndrome, you end up going into the, the aversion place. So you enter into being in the world but not of the world. You enter into the place where there is form and formlessness and they're both there and you have form and you have no form at the same moment. And those paradoxes are part of what is required to embrace. And um, in the afternoon, in the small groups, you've got a chance to explore where you were getting caught and how you were working with it, which is just that edge of getting too much into the stuff and then how do you do it to free yourself. But throughout it, we've been talking about balance, that the game is not to push away the world, the game is not to get caught in it. The game is to, as Christ said, be in the world but not of the world, 
to be simultaneously empty and full, to be somebody and nobody. It's all these paradoxes you have to embrace. There's nothing to do, so get on with it. It's all those paradoxes. It's one after another after another. And they seem like paradoxes because they seem on a horizontal plane. They seem like what the paradox technically means are two thoughts that are incompatible. But really what we're talking about are planes of consciousness in which what's on channel four isn't compatible with what's on channel seven. And so how do you, and yet they're both true or relatively true. So how do you expand to embrace paradox rather than to demand that it be logical? How do you open to that expanded awareness of living with the paradoxes in yourself? It's like, we're all one, but it's my television set. <laughs> See, there are two places that are, it's hard, you know, if, it's, if we're all one, it's not my television set, it's our television set, and you need it, well, there goes my television set. But it's, we've got to learn how to figure that out and how to work with boundaries and without boundaries and how to do it without locking ourselves up in guilt or, or insecurity or indecision or whatever. And allow the paradox that we, what we tend to do is when something bad happens in the world, we tend to externalize it and push it away all the way from a toothache where it was my tooth until it started to hurt and then it was that tooth as if it's no longer me, it's that tooth. And the same way as this whole country does with Saddam Hussein or on and on and on. It's always externalizing evil in order not to realize that it's all inside us. There's no them, there's just us. It's just us. You can't really polarize it and push it away that way. It's too cheap a way out. A mature person embraces the whole business into oneself. And all of our practices that we've done in the past couple of days, sitting, concentrating through sitting and then concentrating through the walking meditation, those were to quiet the mind and to help you get free of the thoughts that keep, that are full of attraction and aversion and seeing the pattern of that stuff in yourself so you can get really quiet inside and meet the part of you that is behind all of the identification with thoughts and sensations. And then Jai led us in Kirtan, in singing, in a way of devotionally starting to relate to the beloved, the spiritual form as the beloved, so in a way of opening the heart. And you can think of these as two really initially separate practices, ultimately they're one practice, but at the higher level, but otherwise one is quieting the mind, one's opening the heart. And you could say, I've got these balances to get in my spiritual world. I've got to quiet my mind, I've got to open my heart, get my energies moving freely in my body, honor my body. And as you uh, look at how to use the fact that you've taken an incarnation, that you're a human, you're in a human form, what does that mean? If it's not an error, it is your curriculum 
for getting enlightened. That each of us has a unique curriculum. Look around, you'll see everybody looks unique. And therefore, everybody's projecting out a different thing. So everybody's meeting a different universe. Your mind and your body are both sending out information all the time and interpreting information. Like, what do you see when you look up here? Well, if, I mean, it depends on your motivation because motivation affects perception. If you're, if you're busy being bald, you see me as somebody with a lot of hair. If you're, you know, I mean, if you're busy being a woman, you see me as a man. If you're busy being, uh, you know, whatever. If you're busy being a person of color, you see me as Caucasian. I mean, it's, in a way, whatever your investment is determines what the universe looks like to you. So we all live in the universe of our own projective systems. That doesn't mean there isn't stuff out here. But it says in the Tao, truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. When you want something, you see only the projection of your wants. You see only the outward container. If you're, in, if you're very attached to color, you see the color of my uh, sweater. So when we meet each other, what we see, in a funny way, is what we are. And as you free your awareness from those identifications with desire, with attachment, with judgment, with all the conceptual stuff, so you're just back in here, then you can start to see, is there a universe out there? And if so, what is it like? It's like regaining innocence. Because you look at a baby looking around, if you could get inside the baby looking around before it has conceptual models, it doesn't know, hey, this is mother, this is a breast. It starts out on an instinctual basis without much consciousness of you put something near its lips and it starts to suck. But at first it's just light and shadow and all that. It's not mother or bed or all. And then it slowly develops a conceptual model. Once you've developed it, it's hard to get rid of it. It's hard not to see that person as mother. It's not hard not to see each thing as this is me. And you never regain the innocence of just seeing patterns of light and dark and shadow and energy fields and all the other things that occur when you're not busy immediately hiding, or not hiding, but in the conceptual spirit conspiracy we all have to see the universe a certain way. Now, in your folder that we gave you, you have a very beautiful picture of a woman. Her name is Ananda Mai Ma. And Ananda Mai Ma was extraordinary being. She had millions and millions of devotees in India, people that just loved to be in her presence. And she grew up and married and all of these things 
And then slowly her spiritual identity kept emerging more and more. And then people started to be around her and feel her resonating with a deeper truth in their own being. And it just opened their hearts and they came to love her very dearly. And this is when she was a young girl still going through that transformation process. And she lived on until for another 50 years or so. And she was just very deeply loved. And I wanna to read to you two quotes from her because um, you and I are, what we're talking about this morning is perspective is how you work with perspective. This is a practice now, how you work with perspective to be able to handle life and do it so it's useful spiritually. So, she said, and this is concerning her practice, which was very devotional of seeing the beloved everywhere and serving the beloved everywhere. That was her practice, it was a devotional practice. Even though who she was, as you will see, was, is beyond practice. To the extent she was informed, she did practice. In other words, you can do practice to get somewhere, and then when you're there, you do the practice to celebrate being there. You don't do it out of need, you do it out of uh, celebratory joy. So this is the first quote. She said, pointing to her own body, she said, this body has lived with father, mother, husband and all. This body has served the husband, so you may call it a wife. It has prepared dishes for all so you may call it a cook. It has done all sorts of scrubbing and menial work, so you may call it a servant. But if you look at the thing from another standpoint, you will realize that this body has served none but God. For when I served my father, mother, husband, and others, I simply considered them as different manifestations of the Almighty and served them as such. When I sat down to prepare food, I did so as if it were a ritual. For the food cooked was, after all, meant as an offering to God. Whatever I did, I did in a spirit of divine service. Hence, I was not quite worldly, though always engaged in household affairs. I had but one ideal, to serve all as God, to do everything for the sake of God. This pure method, it's like Mother Teresa picking up the lepers in the streets of Calcutta. And when they say, how can you do this and how courageous, she, she looks confused and she says, I am caring for my beloved Christ in all his distressing disguises. Now, if you met your beloved on the street lying there, even in its own vomit and urine and all, 
What joy to be able to take care of it instead of, aren't I good? I'm a Mother Teresa taking care of that poor leper. It's a form of making love. It's a form, when you take care of your beloved, it's a form of making love. So there's a perspective about what you do every day. Now let me take you out into another part of her mind where you will get another level of the perspective, which is very important for what we do next. You all all right thus far? We, yeah. At one point, Paramahansa Yogananda, who was also a very beautiful, high spiritual being, he wrote a book called Autobiography of a Yogi that many of you, I'm sure, have been fed by along the way. Once Paramahansa Yogananda asked Ananda Ma to tell him something of her life. Father, there is little to tell. My consciousness has never associated itself with this temporary body. Before I came on this earth, Father, I was the same. I grew into womanhood, but still, I was the same. When the family in which I had been born made arrangements to have this body married, I was the same. And Father, in front of you now, I am the same. Even afterwards, though the dance of creation changes around me in the hall of eternity, I shall be the same. Now, just play with that for a moment and start to find in yourself the place that is the same in the midst of changing phenomena. Like, I'm sad. Are you also the same? I'm happy. Are you also the same? I'm getting old. Are you also the same? In other words, keep looking for what is the same because you focus so much on what's different all the time. Now I'm happy, now I'm sad, now I'm young, now I'm old, now I'm hungry, now I'm full, now I'm horny, now I'm lazy, etc., etc. And behind it all, are you the same? See, the same is the quietness in you that doesn't get much notice because you're so fascinated by the individual differences inside yourself and the way you're always changing. The changing panorama is like the seduction of nature constantly saying, come, revel in all the differences, enjoy them. And that's what romantic poetry is about, reveling in, in the differences. Take this quote from the Prajnaparamita, Tibetan text. All this fleeting world, all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, 
a flash of light in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a dream. Can you get out that far? Could you see this all as a dreamscape? Didn't you dream last night or the night before, the night before that? And when you were in, it didn't seem real. Then remember you woke up, you try to remember it, and maybe you started to lose it, and you thought, boy, that was an interesting dream. Wow, I was really scared, or I was really excited, or that was fascinating. And you said, oh my God, it was only a dream. Now imagine waking up from this one. I mean, in the dreams, didn't time seem like there was a lot of time involved in some of those dreams? And didn't everybody's body seem real? Remember the dream where we were all sitting in a hall being spiritual seekers together? Remember that? Didn't it seem real? Remember everybody? I mean, I could almost remember the words. Didn't I meet you in a dream? To touch the these perspectives, the perspective of the source that Ananda Mai Ma is talking about, about I was always the same, I am always the same, I am just the awareness that is the same. It embraces everything and all the changes are going on within it, but it's the same. It's not, nothing's happening. Here I am. That has such a quietness to it, such an equanimity. And the question, well, I'll give you one more quote and then we'll work with it. This one is from the Tao Te Ching, a translation by a fellow that's doing work now, Stephen Mitchell, who's quite talented. He said, the Tao says, when you realize where you come from, meaning that source place where nothing's going on, that kind of formless out of which the form arises, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king, immersed in the wonder of Tao, in the wonder of the way, in the miracle of it all. You can deal with whatever life brings you. And when death comes, you are ready. I see our situation at the moment. I could see it a thousand different ways, but I'll share one way of seeing it. Yesterday I talked about taking care of my father and many people came up and said, thank you for saying that either I'm taking care of my father or my mother or I did do it or I'm gonna have to do it or I wanna do it or 
I do get off on it or I hate it or whatever. I mean, there were a lot of comments. Besides being members of family, we as incarnates have other identities as well. And we have to honor all of those in order to be free. As long as you're pushing away any part of your incarnation, it's got you, as we said yesterday. If you push away the total incarnation, it's got you totally. If you push away part of it, those parts still have you. If you either grab at a part of it to define yourself that way, or push away by defining yourself as not that. Like people say, I can't stand living in cities. I get high living in the country. See what they're doing? Hear the web of aversion and attraction? Could you give me a spiritual practice? Sure, go live in the city. I mean, you want to get free or just screw around? It's up to you. And for a lot of people, the idea of being a participant in, in the social institutions other than family that are concerned with the common good, like the government, is abhorrent. Because you look and you say, oh, politicians are bloop, and I can't be mm, and I'm not going to participate in it, and it's so big and I'm so little, and it doesn't make any difference anyway. And when I found out that a congressperson, a member of the House or Senate, interprets any letter that they receive as representing 17,000 of their constituents, I thought, boy, I write two letters, that's 34,000 people. What sense of power? It's incredible. So I've been writing letters. Because I recognize, as I said yesterday in response to the question about politics, that I am a member of the family of the nation state, just as I am a member of the family of the world. So when I work in Guatemala with Seva or in Nepal, and what Seva does is it's recognizing the extended family, that there are Guatemalans that are us and there are Nepalis that are us. But I also realize, just as there's a family within the nation state, there's a nation state within the national, and the nation state's like a big ego. And in some way, it's an anachronism because ultimately, because of the information age and the way it's all going to go, there will be world consciousness and world government. And now, just as there's multinationals that cut across the whole game, so there will be the United Nations pretty soon will grow its own teeth, you know, as it gets through infancy. But I feel that you and I as people who are working on our consciousness are sensing in the society at this moment an interesting moment. Now, I'm sure there have been interesting moments all through history. And everybody said this is a really interesting moment. And this is probably no more interesting than they were. But it is an interesting moment still. And the interesting moment is that we taste the possibility of change. And the question is, where does the change occur? Does it occur in laws? I mean, like Ross Perot, good example. 
Ross Perot says we have to change the laws around lobbyists and the payment of lobbyists to Congress people because our government is for sale. <clears throat> I think he's right. The question is, does that solve our dilemma? Or does Ross Perot, is Ross Perot part of our dilemma, even as he's pointing out the dilemma? And is the change that's required a change in Ross Perot-ness, not just in the lobby laws? In other words, is the change that's required a change in us or just in the social systems in which we work? If the change is in us, and that's part of it, and I think most of you see that intimate relationship. I mean, I go to many peace rallies, and everybody at the peace rally is so pissed off all the time. You think, isn't that interesting? That if we're having peace rallies, and everybody's angry at a peace rally, what the hell chance is there of peace? I mean, a peaceful person helps create a peaceful universe. But does a peaceful universe person mean you can't protest? Aha, perspective. Is there a way you can protest from a place of peacefulness? Is there a way that the very act of saying no to somebody can bring you closer together instead of being divisive? Interesting question, isn't it? Don't you notice when you say no to somebody, you tend to close your heart? Wouldn't it be an interesting exercise to figure out how to keep your heart open when you say no? How to love the person and abhor the act and say no to the act and being saying yes to the person and doing it at the same moment, even in the quality of the way you say the no. And these are the exercises of life for a spiritual person. Because if your job is to keep your heart open, and yet you have to act in a way to oppose evil, how do you oppose evil without getting caught in righteousness and good, which polarizes the world? If you and I are to play a part we can play traditional parts of protest, of letter writing, of joining local government, local school committees, doing what we have to participate, to being part of a participatory democracy. Being watchdog, whistleblower, people that account, demand accountability of our government officials. And I think that's all, I think everybody should think about how they're playing on the national arena. I don't think you can cop out saying, well, I've got my family to attend to. I think you've got all the stuff. I mean, it was easy for me to say, look, I've got my consciousness to attend to. I don't have time for my father. Well, it's the same thing with your government, that this government has powerful lobbies putting force on it to do one thing or another. The lobby of consciousness of which we are a part, which doesn't demand membership or newsletters or dues, it's just a, a membership, it's a part of a thing, of a lobby, of consciousness, of saying there can be a compassionate government, there can be a just government, and I represent something that reminds us constantly of that because, and that's the, my part, and I remind my congressman, I remind my president, I remind, because they all need reminding constantly, because they need a support system. 
If they only are talked to by people who have special interests, then our voice just gets lost in the shuffle because we're lousy lobbyists. But if you and I are going to be able to speak to the issues of the world and do it in a way that doesn't create more suffering, we ourselves have got to be able to deal with fear without being reactive. We've got to be able to deal with the suffering without averting our eyes. The predicament you and I face because of the information age is that there is so much suffering available to our consciousness that we tend to abstract it, deny it, turn away from it, because we function under the illusion, I think, that in order to be happy, we have to deny the suffering. So we say, I dealt with the suffering all week. Now I can have a few days off. And I won't think about that suffering. And I would say that when you go back in yourself into the part of you that Ananda Ma is referring to, that doesn't change, that that embraces into itself all the suffering and all the beauty and all of the dream and all of the bubble and all of the pain and all of the reality, and it still has equanimity in it. And that's what we are called upon to be. Now, I, uh, let me take a couple, two statistics. And let's just work with them for a moment. Today, somewhere between 45 and 60,000, 45 and 60,000 people mostly children, will die of malnutrition. Take a statistic like that. It's horrible, but feel how abstract it is. Because you're, you're deluged with those. Okay, now imagine one woman standing here, holding her baby, and the baby is dying of malnutrition. Just imagine the pain of that mother who can't do anything for her baby as it dies in her arms, right here. If she was standing right here, we all wouldn't be sitting around talking about her. We'd be looking for food, we'd be bringing something, we'd be taking care of her, we'd change the whole situation if she was standing right here. But because she's not standing right here and she's now a one of 60,000, we sit here and we say, isn't that a terrible statistic? You just play with that for a second. Now, add into it, let's just really push ourselves a bit. You all right? Are you still here? Let's just push ourselves a little bit. The cost of weapons in the world the amount of money being spent for weapons in the world is $1 trillion per year. That is $2 million per minute. 
one week's worth of weapons would be sufficient to eradicate all malnutrition for the year. So the 15 million people who will die of malnutrition this year, 15 million people would be saved if we gave up one week of military investment. Now, look how easy it is to say they are building the military, I'm for peace. Isn't it terrible these people are starving? Somebody should do something about it. But let us just sit with those statistics for just a minute, as I try to do all the time, and say, what does it say about the human condition and the level of ignorance and the level of fear in which we will spend $2 million a minute out of fear in order to keep ourselves alive in the process of which 15 million of us die? So what are you keeping alive? Me against them, because the people that die are them, they're not us. The cost of making other people into them is profound to your own heart. It cuts you off from the life juice because the nature of our heart is that it's liquid, it goes out, it embraces. My heart goes out to you, we say. And when somebody is suffering in front of you, you can feel what happens in your heart. It goes, oh. And then what happens is you get afraid of it because it's so powerful. Because if your heart rules you, you say, well, I'm afraid I will not be responsible. I mean, that dialogue that goes on between the head and the heart, the heart's saying, oh, when you like, like you love somebody, what do you need? You need, my, you need food? You need clothing? What do you need? You need my car, my life? Take it, because you're my beloved. And the mind, which is the computer center for protecting the survival of the separate entity, is saying, hey, cool it now. You have your health insurance to pay. I mean, the Christian injunction, be like the lilies in the field, is to the heart, not to the mind. The mind can't hear that. The mind says, oh, that's nice poetry, but come on, baby, you want to survive? Forget this lilies business. Feel the tension between the heart and the mind? How do we deal with that tension? Do we deal with that tension by aligning ourselves with our mind against our heart? so that our heart becomes our enemy because it would give away the thing and we're too frightened to imagine giving away everything? Look at that statistic and look at what it implies about us, not them, us. Us. The fastest growing, the fastest growing career in the United States is that of security guards. Security guards. Who are protecting us because we're frightened. 
And if you see the dance between fear and love, fear and love, and you're quiet enough to see how fear arises out of the ignorance in which you have identified exclusively with your separateness and denied the fact that you are one with everything. Because when you're one with everything, there are no boundaries and you are in love, which is the boundaryless state of shared isness. But the fact is you are both everything and your unique self. And that tension, that paradox, that, that creative tension is what you and I as human beings have to live with. That you are both separate and you're not. And as a separate entity, you're frightened because you're little and the system's big and it can crush you any second. A tidal wave or a bad government or who knows what, a big truck. To the extent that you're everything, anything that happens to your body is just a change of energy within you. What difference does it make? Ananda my ma, I was the same before this, I was the same during it, and you know what? After all this turns into something else, I'll still be the same. Is she a kook? Or does she know something you don't know? Or do you know it, but you just know it, you're not it? It's a multiple choice. So I invite you to understand that if you and I are to play our most responsible part in the social, political, cultural arena to honor our identity fully, what we must bring to it is the wisdom that has in it the creative tension. We have to bring with it, to it equanimity in the face of horrendous stuff. We have to bring to it joy that comes from an appreciation of the beauty and the mystery of form, of the way in which God manifests in all these ways. I'll give you just a few brief I mean, uh, the way I use the, usually use the expression is the art is to keep your heart open in hell. To be able to look at what is in the universe without turning away, saying this is too much. In the 60s, we had the expression, hey, too much. Now it's awesome, or it recently was awesome, now it's bad, I think. Hey, man, that's bad. Too much. And I had a friend who used to say to me, every time I'd say, it's too much, he'd say, oh, no, it's not too much, it's just enough. 
So I trained myself to say, oh, just enough. See? Too much is a pushing against. Just enough is a, ah. Oh. Since 1980, the prison population in the United States has doubled. There are between 600,000 and 1 million of us in jail at the moment. A very a large percentage of those are for nonviolent crimes. Since 1970, marriages that occurred, that were put, conceived after 1970, there is more than a 50% likelihood they will end in divorce. Is $200 billion a year. We have a $4 trillion debt. That's $4 trillion we spent beyond our means. You think you've got a credit card problem. You have this problem as well. The population in the world is roughly five something, like five and a half billion. Forty years from now, it will be doubled. 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 Eleven billion. At the same moment, because of deforestation, we are losing on the earth 24 billion tons of topsoil annually from which you grow food. That's four tons per person per year. By the year 2000, we will have 220 tons of high-level toxic nuclear waste we don't know what to do with, and we're producing more all the time. That's interesting. That has a half-life of 250,000 years in its ability to produce cancer in anything that it touches. 220 tons of it. We are losing 150 species of things on the earth daily. Next 50 years, at the rate we're going with our deforestation, we will lose one quarter of all the species on earth. In the last 10 years, the upper 1% of our population in this country has received 70% of the income generated by the 80s boom. The next 19% received 46% of it. <laughs> 
the poorest 20% lost 11%. At this moment, the top 1% of the households in America are worth more than the bottom 90% of the households in America. That's you and I. You and I are part of those systems. We are the creators of those systems. We, without, we are the instruments of those systems. When you don't vote, your vote, your not vote is a vote. There's no way you can get out of it. You're an incarnate, and part of your incarnate is you're a citizen, you're a member of the family, you're a member of all these systems, and until you honor them, meaning find a place to be, make, be, to honor your identity in it, you're not free, and this is a spiritual issue I'm talking about. If you want to be free, you can't be free by pushing away your incarnation. You've got to be free by embracing your incarnation. Not being attached to it, but embracing it. How delicate. How delicate. Either I know it or I don't. I mean, I wrote it all down, so somebody must know it in here. So I challenge you as a spiritual practice to start to see your life as your practice. To meditate, to quiet your mind, to read devotional things and do devotional practices to open your heart, to pray, to find whatever rituals will help you open your heart. To study in order to keep developing these perspectives so you see the world from a quiet place as well as from an engaged place. When I was so upset about a political situation, my guru looked at me and he said, Ramdas, don't you see the world is all perfect? I said, perfect? With what's going on in Bangladesh, you're telling me it's perfect? He was saying, don't you see? In other words, don't you simultaneously see that it stinks and that it's perfect. In order to do that, this is really heavy, I know, but what the hell? It's Chicago. <laughs> or, or Evanston. Couldn't happen in Chicago, but in Evanston it could happen. You've, you finally have got to reflect on the question of whether suffering in the world is an error. Did somebody blow it? I mean, doesn't it reasonable when somebody you love has died to ask, why did this have to happen? Isn't it reasonable when you go through all the fear and pain and all of dying to say, Is, does this have to happen? Who created this monstrous game? Maharaji's saying, don't you see it's all perfect? And I'm saying, no, I don't. Maybe he's saying to me, can't you find in yourself the place where you could conceive of the possibility that this is all perfect? Can you find in yourself the place? No, I can't. We'll try. Because you can hear in the way you're saying, no, I can't, that you're 
unwilling to even look because it feels immoral to even consider that some suffering, that a child dying of malnutrition could be perfect. Is it possible, and this is where you come right up against the term, the mystery of the game, the mystery of life. Does, what does the term mystery do to you? Does it feel like a cop-out? Well, the mystery is because we don't know yet, says every scientist. Even as 90% of all wisdom, of all knowledge, is still error variance in their system. <laughs> That's an in-joke for people that understand statistics. You and I saw yesterday that suffering is terrible when it happens to another person and you do what you can to help them to relieve their suffering. When suffering happens to you, at first it's horrible and then as you keep growing on, it becomes you begin to see that the suffering is showing you where your clinging is and it actually becomes grace. It's helping you get free. You didn't ask for it, but when it comes along, it shows you your secret stash. It helps remind you, oh, did I get stuck in that one? Did I get stuck in that one again? Just leap to the next level of possibility and say, I don't understand why death occurs and this game has been manifested. Forget that somebody did it, because it's us that did it. It's just us chickens. There's only one of it, and we're doing it. We're it, so we're doing it. But allow for the fact that there is mystery, that you just don't know. You never know. You just don't know. It's far out to be able to say, I don't know, without feeling somehow like you failed. Because you're supposed to know. Like people come up to me and they say, Ramdas, could I talk to you? I'm confused. And I say, wonderful. You see why I could say wonderful to your confused? You see how a confused mind allows for the possibility something could happen? while everybody that knows is closed off, if you will. And yet the nature of death and suffering is a mystery. I mean, I can give you wonderful explanations of the way suffering is the unfolding of karma and it's perfect and you're working out stuff and it's your secret stash and all that stuff. But that's all one level. But behind it all is just the mystery of it, the mystery of death, the mystery of suffering, the mystery of birth. And the question is, how comfortable can you get with the mystery so that when an act of suffering comes towards you, you respond in this really complex way. As a human being, your heart breaks and it's unbearable and you do what you can to heal it. And another level of your being embraces it all into the heart that is full and happy and present and joyful and lives with the mystery. That's the secret. The secret is the art 
of being simultaneously human and divine. Simultaneously, your heart breaks. So you say, I'm afraid of that suffering because my heart will break. I guarantee it will break again and again and again and again. I mean, I've had love affairs where then something happened and I, it was over. And my heart closed down and I thought my heart will never open again. And sometimes it took years and then suddenly whatever it was, a leaf falling or something and my heart was opening. I guarantee your heart will open and close like a lotus flower. Behind it, there is another level of your being. Behind romantic love, there is conscious love. There is the quality of boundless merging with things in which it's all us and it's all just unfolding within itself. Ah, there's death, ah, there's birth, ah, there's cancer. Ah, uh, there's injustice. Oh, oh, oh. This is the exercise that I'm about in my life, and I encourage you to do it too. To take on suffering until you can eat it alive. Till you can do what you have to do about it, realizing you're little, it's a lot, you can't take away all the suffering, so, yeah, and you can't get burned out by it, you only burned out by it if you're attached to getting rid of it all. You can't be attached to getting rid of it all. You don't even know why it's there in the first place. But it is there and your heart is there and your heart wants to relieve the suffering, so relieve the suffering. Just don't get caught in taking it all away or you'll burn out. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.